the hunt for patient zero. I don't think anybody likes to get a phone call that says, hi, I'm from the health department. We'll interview a disease detective in just a moment on the briefing. Hello, it is Monday the 20th of July and Annika Smethurst is here to talk through the big stories of the day. Hey Tom, an Australian first that Melbourne never wanted. From Thursday, the Victorian Premier says masks will be mandatory in public in Melbourne and the Mitchell Shire. Most of us wouldn't leave home without our keys, we wouldn't leave home without our mobile phone. Uh, You won't be able to leave home without your mask and then wear it where um, it is absolutely essential. There'll be $200 fines for anyone caught without a mask. Uh, There are exceptions, uh, including going for a run or if you go into a bank. Uh, Yesterday in Victoria, the Chief Health Officer confirmed another concerning number of new COVID cases. So 363 new cases today in Victoria. Uh, We are on a bit of a numbers roller coaster at the moment, uh, but with uh, no absolutely clear sign that uh, numbers are decreasing. And it's not just those in Melbourne being told to wear masks. It's now being strongly encouraged in New South Wales too. People are urged to avoid non-essential travel and gatherings. Of particular concern is transmission in venues such as hotels and restaurants, the gym and social gatherings. Consider the use of masks in situations where you are unable to social distance. That was the New South Wales Deputy Chief Health Officer, Dr Jeremy McNulty, after announcing 18 new cases in New South Wales yesterday. And in New South Wales, they're also closely watching an outbreak in Batemans Bay on the south coast, where eight people have so far tested positive after visiting the Soldiers Club. Guaranteed loans of up to a million dollars will be offered to three and a half million small businesses to help them through the pandemic. The government had been guaranteeing small business loans of up to $250,000. Now they've pushed that limit up to $1 million. This comes as we wait for plan changes to the $1,500 a fortnight JobKeeper payment on Thursday. There will be some adjustments to the scheme to make sure it is appropriate for the next phase. It is going to be important to reassess which businesses still should be receiving this support. So that was the Finance Minister, Matthias Cormann, on Sky. Annika, you actually spoke to the Treasurer last week. What do you know about the way the government are going to approach JobKeeper going forward? Look, they're being pretty coy, but I think we can almost say that the $1,500 a fortnight flat rate won't continue as it is. They need it to be more targeted. And the problem with that was they just had to get money out of the door. But that meant that one in five people was actually receiving more money on JobKeeper than they were before this. That wasn't an initial problem for the government because, as I say, it was just about injecting money into the economy. But they've had time to think about that. And now we think it might be more tiered payments or tapered payments to really target those that have been hardest hit, so those in tourism or hospitality versus those that aren't doing so bad. I guess one of the strengths of this system initially was its simplicity, that there was the single payment and the criteria was quite open as to who would get it. Is it fair to say it will be more complex going forward? Yeah, absolutely. They didn't want to build a whole new system because it would have taken ages to do. They just had to really get that money out of the door. So now this will, you know, three months later, it's going to come in in September. It's given the government time to really try and find who's hurting in the economy. And the example is, you know, a cafe. Some of them are doing great guns if they're doing takeaway or just takeaway coffees, whereas others that have people come into restaurants are really hurting. So this way they can really drill that money to who needs it. And it's 106 days until the US election and presidential latecomer Kanye West is holding his very first rally today. As you probably could have guessed by this moment, I have decided in 2020 to run for president. Wow. 
<laughs> Drop the mic. Unsurprisingly, Yuzi's events will be invite only and supporters will be asked to sign a COVID-19 release form to social distance and to wear a mask. What do you think about Kanye running for president, Annika? I thought he'd already pulled out, so look, I'm pretty surprised he's doing this. But the risk is that he actually takes support away from Joe Biden, who's going great guns. Look, three and a half months ago, Biden and Trump were pretty neck and neck in in trust and and other measures around the pandemic. Now Biden has a 20-point lead over Trump, so... You wouldn't want that being eaten in too much with a, with a, you know, entry by Kanye. Well, I think the only thing we really need to be worried about is all of this providing extra promotion for his album. Um, oh, which, you're such a cynic, Tom. <laughs> it's exactly what it is. It's just total hype. He's running this sort of disinformation campaign. Oh, he's pulling out. Oh, no, he's tweeting something he's drawn on a napkin that looks more like the Australian <laughs> Parliament House than the White House. It's, it's chaos. He's taking a leaf out of the Trump book and he's drawing more and more attention to his album. He's even changed the name of the album. It was going to be God's Country. Uh, now it looks like it's going to be called Donda. It's chaos but we're talking about it. Look, I just want to see Kim in the White House. I will support this if she is the first lady. (laughs) All right, Annika, we'll catch you tomorrow. Jan Fran is here now to talk about some of the most important people fighting the pandemic. The Prime Minister has described them as... A team of of Sherlock Holmeses out there at the moment and they are doing a fantastic job on tracking down these cases. These Sherlock Holmeses, these detectives... They are saving Australian lives and they're very likely doing it from a nondescript office building using just two things, a phone and a computer. Yeah, we're talking about the coronavirus contact tracers or disease detectives. They're the health experts who interview people with COVID-19 to try and work out who they might have gotten the virus from and who they might have been in close contact with. Yeah, right now in Victoria alone, there are 1,300 of these part doctors, part detectives working around the clock to keep those spiralling Victorian COVID cases under control. Yeah, and they're working in all states. Christian Pugh is a contact tracer in South Australia. His team is assisting Victoria with their tracing efforts. Uh, It's a fascinating job. Let's find out how it works. Part doctor, part detective. Do you reckon that sums up your job pretty well? Yeah, look, I I think that's quite true. We, um, as part of this job, do need to have a bit of medical experience in terms of understanding of the disease and the pathology um, and symptoms to be able to describe it accurately. But we also need to be able to um, be quite investigative and piece together these COVID cases and uh, find out where they're coming from and really do a lot of detailed history taking from people to try and find out Um, sources of people's infections or if uh, multiple cases might be linked together. So tell us how the process works. You hear about a new COVID-19 case. What do you do next? In the majority of states and territories, well, in in all of them, the laboratories are required to tell the health departments when they get a positive result. So they will send a notification to their health departments and what they'll do is they'll then ring the case. So they'll ring the person let them know of their positive diagnosis for COVID. And essentially then it's a matter of doing a really, really detailed history taking. So we need to figure out, first of all, exactly when their symptoms of onset, because that defines when they may have been infectious and the time period where they may have acquired the infection from. And then uh, in South Australia, we go through day by day 
and we find out exactly where they've been, who they've been with, what they've been doing, how long they've spent there to find out both where they may have acquired the infection from if it wasn't, you know, quite obviously coming back from overseas and anybody else they may have been in contact with whilst they were infectious that we need to then follow up to say, hey, look, you may be at risk of uh, developing or, uh, COVID or becoming unwell. We need you to stay at home. Mm. So when you do this sort of history tracing, is it a contact tracer sitting in an office with a phone talking down the line? How does it actually work? The majority of us all sit in the office together um, and we do make all of these phone calls out to people. Um, I guess just being together, we work with our public health doctors as well. So we have them nearby. It means they can answer questions for us. Um, and it's, it's just an ideal environment to all be together to work on, you know, cases and, and outbreaks of multiple cases together. So it's like a really hectic call centre. This is the, it, the it, visual it, image I've got in my mind. It, 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 it is. I think okay. that's exactly what it is. It's a very hectic sort of call centre. <laughs> With social distancing. Yes. Um, With social distancing, that's right. So what are those phone conversations like, I imagine you need to build up a fair bit of trust with people because they need to, A, really have their memory jogged, but B, potentially reveal very intimate or even incriminating details. Yeah, that, that's right. And that can be um, a bit of a challenge of the job as well. I think, um, you know, my personal approach when talking to people is to explain to them the purpose of what we're doing. I don't think anybody likes to get a phone call that says, hi, I'm from the health department from the government. Can no, you absolutely not. For the past seven days. Um, so, you know, for me, I, I try to explain to people the importance of what we're doing, um, a bit about the disease to educate them. And then I say the purpose of why we need to follow people up and find out where they've got it from. And ultimately, it is all just to try and prevent the spread of the infection. And where we can do something to stop other people from becoming unwell, we'll do it. Um, so it's about building a bit of trust with people, um, building rapport, having a bit of chat with people, I guess using a, a lot of memory prompts. Um, you know, if, if I asked you or even if somebody asked me what I was doing seven days ago, I'd really struggle to, to yeah. come up with that. It's a bit of, oh, okay, so you, so you went to work that day. What do you do for work? You don't remember what you did that day. Uh, you said your family was visiting or you said you were in the middle of doing a project. Were you working on that? Um, do you have a, a bank app there that you might have transactions on that could lead you to, to where you've been? Um, there's lots of sort of hints and suggestions that we might give people to try and get them to get, give us more information that we need. I mean, 15 minutes of face-to-face -face time is sort of this simple guide that we keep hearing for what mm. could potentially be a high-risk contact of someone yes. who has COVID-19. Can you give us more detail on who you consider to be close contacts and how many close contacts a person might come into contact with over a period of a day or a week? Yeah. First is someone's household, um, whether or not they, you know, it's housemates and they say they haven't seen them for the, for the week because they, they're in their separate rooms and they barely cross paths, you know, maybe occasionally. If they're in the household, the risk is really high. They'll be counted as a close contact. It gets a bit more finicky when we're doing the, the brief encounters that people may have mm. had. And um, so, you know, I went to the shops for 15 minutes um, or, you know, I was talking to the person at the checkout for 10 minutes, things like that. You sort of maybe probably not because, you know, if you're at a checkout, there's a bit of distancing and, you know, especially the, the supermarkets at the moment, there's lots of social distancing occurring. It gets a bit trickier when we're talking about workplaces. So when mm. somebody has been to work and oftentimes that's actually really quite difficult because, um, trying to try and visualise someone's workplace and the layout of desks and how people work together. And, you know, whilst we're all trying to do social distancing, we know that uh, someone's over at the photocopier, you walk past and you have a chat with them and you, you sort of don't really think about it. So it, that, that can be quite challenging. 
Um, I think what we're seeing in Australia at the moment, though, is a lot more complex histories that need to be taken because people have obviously been a lot more active. Um, so it, it really would be quite a challenge um, for people that are helping Victoria and Victoria themselves to determine who these contacts are. Yeah, once you're seeing a lot of community transmission, I imagine the job gets way more complex because people have been moving around. I saw that um, infectious disease expert Professor Raina McIntyre said um, the average case will have about nine or ten close contacts. So Mm. I'm wondering how many close contacts or degrees of contact down the line do you go? Because say you have your first case and that person on average has ten close contacts. Do you then call the close contacts of the close contacts and then the close contacts of those close contacts because if you get four degrees of separation down the line, you're talking about 10,000 people. That, that's right, yes. No, and I think that is a really common misconception with people. Ultimately, we just do contacts of a case. We oh. don't do contacts of contacts right. because the infectious risk there is, is negligible until one of those contacts has an infection. Um, you know, Someone that's a contact of a contact hasn't actually been in contact with an infectious case and they're at no greater risk than anybody else. Yeah. And, and that's a common question we get because people hearing about COVID and nearby exposures do get really concerned and, and, and they get stressed about it and they say, oh, my friend was told to stay at home because one of her friends had COVID. What do I need to do? And the answer is if you haven't had contact with that person that's infectious, you don't need to do anything apart from be vigilant and continue your social distancing like everybody else. Yeah. In Sydney last week there was this really sort of massive effort to find patient zero, so to speak, um, Mm. from the Crossroads Hotel cluster. Authorities believe now that it was a a transport worker, a freight worker who had been in Melbourne. How do you actually work out who patient zero is? Sometimes you, you just won't know and you can really only work on your hypothesis that this is the most likely series of events Sometimes you just won't find out. You'll see that cases are linked together and you won't necessarily have an explanation. You might have something that you can loosely say, oh, okay, you know, their uncle went overseas and returned back and we know they were a case, but then the cousin, they only had contact with the cousin, not the uncle. So maybe the cousin had um, sort of illness that didn't get reported. It's entirely possible that you'll never find out who that patient zero is. I imagine to do that, you've got to work backwards, whereas the process you described at the start of the interview where you have a a case and then find their contacts is sort of working from the contact outwards. But when you've got a a nightmare scenario like a Crossroads Hotel cluster, how do you go back to find patient zero? Yeah, look, um, I I, I think that, sorry, maybe I didn't explain properly, but essentially what happens when you're interviewing someone is you interview seven days before their symptoms of onset to find out where they may have acquired the infection from. And that's just as important as uh, following up from afterwards when they're symptomatic. So essentially what you do in their seven days before they have developed any symptoms, which is, uh, sorry, 14, not seven, 14 days prior to their symptoms being onset, ask them exactly the same questions about where they've been be to sort of lead to you where they have got their infection from because that will help us piece together this, I guess, the idea of the patient zero. So you look at who they've been in contact with previously. Do we happen to know that they're a known case? Do we happen to know they've been to a high-risk area? You know, at the moment, if we had a case and they said they hadn't travelled interstate, but they said they'd had lots of contact with people from Victoria, I would probably think that's the most likely explanation if that's what they told me. So we do actually work backwards when we're doing our contact tracing. Mm. Okay. Christian, 
if the COVID Safe app was working, would your job <laughs> yes. be a lot easier? It's a really challenging concept, and I think it's quite challenging. You know, if we're struggling to sort of articulate the the 15 minutes, 1.5 meters to each other, how we can expect an app to sort of do that um, without fail as well is also quite a challenging expectation. Um, but you know, if in in ideal world and it was uh, wonderful and it did everything we needed to do, I'm sure it could be quite useful. But ultimately, we do get the majority of the history from the cases. Christian, we'll finish this interview with a chance to congratulate yourself. Uh, as of last week, South Australia only had nine cases that were community transmitted. Can you and your mm-hmm. team take credit for that? Do you think you've been able to stop community transmission? I, uh, yeah, look, not just me, but the, the entire team at SA Health and the Communicable yep. Disease Control Branch have done an amazing job. Um, and I think it's just tireless hours that really dedicated and really passionate people have put in. So I think that's where all the recognition should be directed in terms of helping to control the spread of the disease. Yeah, awesome. Christian Pute, thanks so much for being with us this morning. No worries. Thank you so much for your time. That was Christian Pute, a contact tracer who's doing a, a great job. A very modest contact yeah. tracer as well. Yeah, working with um, South Australian Health. It kind of makes me think back to the start of the pandemic when everyone was freaking out and we realised who were the real heroes in our societies. Uh, yeah, teachers. People working in supermarkets. Drivers, yep. Doctors, nurses. And these guys in their call centres, hitting the phones, contact tracing everyone. The other element of this is... It doesn't quite work if you are not compliant with the suggestions and with the information that they're requesting from you. So it's a bit of a two-way street as well. And people need to be honest as well about who they've been in contact with. Yeah, no judgment. Just tell them what they need to know, all right? Well, that is it for today's podcast. Tomorrow, cybersecurity. What is the actual threat? That's The Briefing. Speak to you then. Listener.